So we, we have been walking through 1 Peter for a few months now, and, and we're getting close to the end. And what I want to do is I want to kind of like bring up some stuff that, that we didn't get to touch on last week um, because we had the privilege of being able to really pray and, and be part of the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And it was awesome. Bob Fu actually referred to the verse that we're going to um, talk about here in a moment, and that was incredible. But I just want us to kind of replay some of these things. So, so hear this with me. In 1 Peter, it is a letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, which means there are followers of Jesus um, that are spread throughout this, this region called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and, and they are there under incredible persecution in, in a place, in a, in a culture that is after them. Right, And so what Peter is doing is he's communicating to them their past, their present, their future realities and responsibilities they have as elect exiles. So this letter serves as both an encouragement and a charge to them in the midst of their cultural crisis. But here's the thing. In a similar way, 1 Peter is a letter that serves as a guide to us. And by the Holy Spirit of God, we as elect exiles here in this day, understanding that this is not our home. Right? We are ambassadors here. Where we live, work, and play, we are away from our true home. Where we see God telling us about our past in this text. We see him telling us about our present, about our future realities, but also, as we'll see today, our responsibilities. This letter serves as an encouragement and a charge in the midst of our cultural crisis. This moment right now that we are walking in and through. And so last week when we got to, to watch through the simulcast from old Jacksonville, um, what Bob Fu went through himself in China. And, and there he was sitting in the prison. If, if you were here last week, you saw it. And him singing um, with his legs out and his arms out because that's what they made them do. And he was just singing praises. And it was with that in mind, and by the way, like I sat through it twice, and it got me both times, just emotional, just thinking about the beauty of that man doing that in that situation. And so with that in mind, if you would pick up in your Bibles, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, and we're going to walk through this and the text for today um, that we have in chapter 5. So look at it with me. Uh, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Okay, so don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Expect it. As though something strange were happening to you. Like, just asking, is this normal? Like, when I'm walking through this challenge, this setback, this pushback from culture, is this normal? So don't be surprised by it as if something strange were happening to you. In fact, better than that, verse 13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, which means you get to identify with the work of Christ's suffering on your behalf. Now you're suffering on his because you identify with him. It says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I, I love this because there will be a day we see in Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When he comes and he's revealed, then you too will also be seen. So verse 14, if... You are insulted for the name of Christ. Listen to this crazy statement. If you are insult, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, real quick, keep in mind, this is Peter who's saying this. But these words are not original to him. 
In fact, there was a time where he was sitting there on the side of a mountain um, where Jesus is preaching a sermon, and Jesus is given a list of the Beatitudes, and, and one of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are, are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And so Peter is just drawing upon what he's already heard Jesus say. He says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so, so track with me. If you're insulted by the name of Christ, it is God's grace identifying you as one who has his spirit present on you. And as a result, people are insulting you. And all it is is like, hey, I identify with that person. And if you go through it, you get it, right? It's painful. But at the same time, the beauty is that it's a way for God to say, you are mine. But notice verse 15 in contrast. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So don't suffer for, for, for sinful things. Verse 16, yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, now just, just pull back for a second. Some of us, when we go through like some major setbacks in life, some of us are great and we're mature believers and we respond like, praise the Lord. Lord, be glorified through this pain that I'm walking through. But then there, there's some of you who, who kind of like me, when you have a hangnail of a scenario happen in your life and you lose, you lose your mind. The thing here is that you were so anchored in who God is. You're so anchored in the fact that you're, you, you've been identified with him, that you are his elect exile, that you so get it that you will glorify God in that name. So no matter how big or small the setback or challenge you face in life, you are able to respond Accordingly, because of Christ. Now, walk with me in verse 17 through 19. We kind of got this unique phrasing here. I just want us to see it together. For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, if you've already been walking with us through 1 Peter, he's already kind of done this alluding to a time when God will, will come back, when Christ will come back and, and bring his people and re restore. And so he's always anticipated and forward thinking with that. And here in a similar way, now with judgment, he says it is time for it to begin with the household of God. And, and notice this, and if, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will happen for them? And we see in verse 18 a quote from Proverbs 11. It says this, And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Like if it's, I mean, like we're going through this judgment, this pain, this process. What's going to happen for those that don't know the Lord, who aren't anchored in truth? What's, what's their plight? And then he closes with a weighty statement, which we'll deal with in a second. And in verse 19, it says, Therefore, so as a result of that, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We'll, we'll unpack that in a moment. But I, I want to kind of deal with this picture of judgment, this picture of, of really what's happening there for believers. So, 1 Peter chapter 1 kind of helps us frame some of this in context. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 and 7 says this, very similar to what we see in verse 12 in chapter 4, but we'll, we'll connect it here in a second. Watch this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved 
by various trials. We're about to see the reason behind it. Here, watch this. Verse 7, so that, so here's why, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, here it is, though tested, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? So let's read verse 12 again from chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Very similar, right? This picture here to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And so there's this reality of God's grace where he is using suffering as a refining in our life. There are aspects of what's called sanctification that we need, and that is God's grace in processing us to be made holy. We've already been declared holy. Now he's using a process to make us be what we've already been declared that we are. And that is his grace, breaking that down. And there are some aspects of my sinfulness that Aaron continues to pray that that sanctification would hurry up. And so so this picture here, of God like really bringing this about to refine us. It is a refining piece where the impurities are brought to the surface so that you would look like the master. And then this picture of discipline that we also see in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this with me. The latter part of um, verse 5 says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, meaning that this is going to happen. So don't be weary. Don't be like beat down by it. And here's why, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, he chastises every son whom he receives. And so that we understand that there is this commonality of suffering that is universal, we see in Matthew 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now here's the distinction, and this is why it's different Is for a believer, God's judgment and kindness comes in not to condemn us to our, you know, to hell. He comes in to use it as a refining and as a discipline for us. But for those who don't know the Lord, it it is a judgment and a condemnation to hell. So that's, that's the distinction here. Suffering happens to all of us, but one for one reason, one for the other. This is a weighty statement. And then Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says... The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and will later move outward to judge those outside the church. The refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated and trust in God and holiness of life are growing. So it has purpose. What is brilliant about this section of scripture is this transition that we haven't seen yet in this letter. From chapter 4 to chapter 5, something is introduced that hasn't been shown just yet. What we see is that even in the midst of their suffering and pain, and it seems like they're isolated and scattered, God has set leaders among them to lead them to serve as shepherds in their midst. He had leaders even in the midst of the exile that he had set aside for them. In each area of the dispersion, there were um, what's called elders in each community of faith, in each body, the church, the body of Christ, that someone who could serve them as shepherds. These leaders had responsibilities both practically and spiritually to serve and shepherd those communities. 
So with that in mind, let's look at this. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is, be, uh, that is going to be revealed. And then it gives like a list of responsibilities. Verse 2, shepherd the flock that is among you, shepherd, flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see this in Proverbs 3 and in James 4. And then in verse 6, it says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Very similar to James 4 as well. And then he closes, Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. In other words, God has given the elect exiles, leaders who are responsible to care for them as representatives, as his representatives, as his under shepherds in the midst of their sufferings. These are traits that are in contrast to the leadership that is around them in the Roman Empire. The way that they are lording and domineering and doing it begrudgingly. That's what they have around them, but that's not what they have in the body of Christ through elders. What I love about this text, and I'm reading this, and, and I'm seeing this, and I also try to zoom out for a second. I'm thinking, who is the Holy Spirit of God using to communicate these things? So we, we see that this person that is writing this is the one who heard Jesus say that he was a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The person who is writing this, led by the Holy Spirit, is the one who heard Jesus say that he is the sheep gate. So he's there listening to Jesus, Peter is. As Jesus says, I am the gate, meaning that there is this, this area, this boundary by a bunch of rocks, and there's a, a creek bed over here where they will get their water from. But at night, to keep the wolves out, they don't have a door on a hinge to protect them. No, the door is the shepherd. And so Peter has these images in mind, and then he says... The one who, this is the same person who heard Jesus talk about the father leaving the 99 for the one. See, this is Peter who was on the scene for these statements and now they're beginning to sink and he has responsibility. This is the same one who heard Jesus ask him to feed his sheep. So this is important, what, what Peter is responding to. So notice how he says it. I exhort the elders among you. And notice this distinction. As a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker of this glory. And then he says to shepherd, like I have, like Christ has for me. And so let's look briefly at these responsibilities. The first one we see is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he's telling these elders, you make sure that you are stewarding those in your care. You're making sure that you're highlighting the gifts of those that are there. 
Like what happens sometimes in each, I love this as a body of believers, some of the greatest gifts I've ever seen in anybody's life of faith I've seen in this body. And it's incredible how you guys rise up and you are just stewarding that for the Lord. And that's what these elders were supposed to do. Say, hey, these are the gifts. These are the strengths. Let's use these. These over here, not necessarily their strengths, but let's move them to a place where they are exercising their strengths, exercising their passions that I've given them. And so the elder is supposed to, to really steward that. He's also supposed to exercise oversight, which means looking out for the needs and the potential harm for the flock. He finds ways to make provision, to care for them, to equip them, to give them what they need. And notice the attitude it addresses next as a part of this responsibility, to not do it under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. I don't know if you've ever been around a, a leader who's doing it begrudgingly or out of resentment. You can usually tell it by their body language, by how loud the door slams or the drawer slams, or how, you know, <laughs> their body language screams to you. They may not be saying it, but their body is. So not under compulsion, but willingly. And this is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. They have the right motive in serving the Lord. And the fifth responsibility is not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And I love this because it's very akin to what we see in Philippians 2, right? Where it says, look not only to your interest, but also to the interest of others. And then it gives the example of who Christ is, right? What he does in laying down himself. So this is the picture. And this is what elders are supposed to look like. So I want you to kind of understand this just for a second. You want to know what you should expect from me as your pastor? You should expect these five things. You should say, you know what, Lewis, I need you to make sure that you're stewarding in leadership of this church. Lewis, I need you to make sure that you are exercising oversight and looking out for our needs and potential harm. I need you to make sure that you're not doing this like under compulsion, but you're willingly doing it as God would have you. Lewis, I want to make sure that you are not doing this for shameful gain, but eagerly having the right motive in this. And Lewis, I want to make sure that you're not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. But it's not just me. It's the staff that we have here at Grace. You should expect that from us. We, we have men that, that are set apart, that have been called to be elders. These are lay, lay leaders in our church, and, and, and these men have this same responsibility before you. But here's what's great about this whole list of responsibilities. This is also a responsibility for any of us who are in Christ. Because what's crazy is these are incredible, like game-changing, like responsibilities and like just nuances of good leadership. Can you imagine going to a workplace where your boss looks out for you like a shepherd does? Where they're like making sure that you are using your gifts to the best of your ability and he's stewarding your gifts. Can you imagine a boss that was really thinking about that? One who's actually exercising oversight instead of exercising over your shoulder? Or how about one that actually enjoys, like willingly enjoys working with you? Could you imagine a boss like that? I mean, one that would sit there and say, you know what? I don't care about the bottom line. I care about you. Not shameful game, but your heart. Can you imagine a boss that said, you know what? I'm not going to dominate you, but I'm going to be an example to you. 
that kind of leader. That's the kind of leader we would want to work for. But what if you were that kind of leader? Maybe if, if you were that kind of teacher in your classroom. Maybe that kind of coach to your team. What if you were that kind of boss? That kind of dad? That kind of mom? Kind of husband? Kind of wife that led this way? That said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take what Christ has done in me, and I want to make sure it is shown to those around me. And here's what's cool. I, I, I want to kind of capture something that's in the text that, that is so, so important. So, so watch this with me. If you would, just for a second, go back to verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will, so there is God's grace in suffering. He is behind it. He is using it. He is developing it for us. It says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. So while you walk through some of the hardest things you've ever walked through, what you're doing is you're leaning into God. You're depending on him. You're casting every bit of who you are onto him who is faithful. He says, a faithful creator. And notice, you're not just doing that and sitting on your hands. Did you, did you notice the little detail it says? While you're entrusting yourself to a faithful creator, you're also doing good. So part of your suffering, part of your pain, and as you lean on the Lord to, to care for you, to deliver you, to help you in that, you're also supposed to be doing good. And here's the crazy thing. This is not the first time. It's close to a dozen times in 1 Peter that he talks about doing good, having good conduct. And do you remember the so that, the reason behind it? It's, it's something that builds and edifies the body, but it's also an example to those that don't know the Lord outside of the body of Christ. God uses your response to your suffering as an example and as a testimony for the household of faith, but also for those that don't know him just yet. So as we look through this, we want to understand that we want to be good stewards of leadership in the marketplace, right? We want to be good stewards of leadership in our civic duties, those around us, if you want to work in government, we want to be good stewards in our families, in our classrooms, on the ball field. We want to be good stewards of this grace that God has entrusted. And to think that this little bit of leadership, even though it's a bunch of rascal first and second graders that I'm trying to coach basketball and they don't have a clue what they're doing, I'm going to make sure that I'm stewarding the moment with those little guys. So notice your five responsibilities if you want to be a leader like Jesus. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Steward their gifts. Steward their time. Steward the moments. Speak truth and encouragement into their lives. Exercise oversight. Looking out for their needs and potential harms, things that would set them back. Make sure you do it not under compulsion, but you do it willingly as God would have you. So make sure you don't do it with resentment. And make sure you don't do it with, for shameful gain, but do it eagerly with right motives as you're serving the Lord. And, and make sure you're not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example to them. One, one of the things, I don't know if you've ever been around 
you know, certain coaches that have their way of communicating, where instead of like trying to build you in your weaknesses to make you better, they actually just, just deflate you and tell you what you can't do. And this kind of leader says, you know what, I see that, man, you're just not good at doing that particular, you know, run or, or this way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk beside you and show you the right way to do it. That's the kind of leader that's in view here. Not just demeaning or belittling the player, but actually saying, hey, look, let me show you the better way. Let me show you the right way. And building them towards that end. That's this kind of leader. And here's the thing I love about this text that I really want us to see and see highlighted here. So go back to verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I don't know if you've ever been around a young person that feels like they know more than the older person. That's funny. I've been that guy. Looking back, that's funny. Okay? And then it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Can you imagine a community of people who sought to lift up and value the other person because they understand what the other person is going through instead of demeaning them? Let me give you a great place where you will not find this. It will not be found on Twitter. It will not be found on Facebook. That's where we go to like put people down. I don't know if you know that. That's, that's the boundaries. If you want to insult people, log on to Twitter. Okay, just kidding. Not really. All right, clothe yourselves with all humility, right? Toward one another. Here's why. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, I, I want to just lean just for a second. We've got a, a few minutes here. That phrase, mighty hand of God, is called anthropomorphism. You know, it's a word we use every day. What that means is it's giving human traits to a spiritual being. It's saying to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, which means under the power, providence, and protection of the holy God. You put yourself below him. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you humble yourselves that way? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Some translations say lift you up. Here's why. This is why you would even dare to like humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because when you're doing that, you're casting all your anxieties on him. And why would you do that? Because he cares for you. The God with the mighty hand is the one who who cares for you. He's the ultimate good shepherd. So church, walking through this, and we're learning some things about humility. So if you want to humble yourself, here's some ideas to learn with humility. Humility, Andrew Murray, South African pastor, one of my favorite quotes. I have it in my office right on the wall in front of my desk. It says this, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, 
to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret. And I, I am at perfect peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. That's humility. Humility is a recognition of your spiritual reality that shapes your response ultimately to other people. What's the spiritual reality? This is how you could treat other people differently because you know it now. The first thing you need to know about your spiritual reality is that you need God's grace. You need it. We all do. We all need God's grace. The second thing we need to understand of the spiritual reality is that you, you need to know that the people around you they need God's grace too. So in other words, what happens is you begin with humility by looking in the mirror and seeing your blemishes. And then when you see other people, you understand that they have blemishes too. And because both of you have blemishes, the only hope for, for all of you, any of you, is found in God's grace. And so if I know that about you and you know that about me, then what I could do is I could respond to you the same way that I would hope you respond to me. And that's with grace and humility. That changes a group of people. And this posture of humility paves the way for honor. And the honor that we receive, it says, that is so good that we lift it up, is that we have a standing with Christ. We have an inheritance with him. And that we also get with that, that lifting up, we also get a care from God for the things that we cannot control. Casting all your anxieties on him. For he cares for you. Here's the thing I know. With the amount of people in this room, I guarantee you there's some of you that stress is eating your lunch. You are so worried right now. You are so distracted by the stress in your life. And you need to know that the God who has the mighty hand he cares for you. Like, you need to know that. It doesn't need to be just words on the page. This needs to be the, the reality that God's word is living and active, and you need to sense and, re, and just trust that his word is living and active. And it says that he cares for you. And in the midst of your stress, in the midst of that anxiety, that thing that you can't figure out, that code that you can't crack, he has it. And he's got you. And you need to trust him. So I want to encourage that. So if you're a follower of Christ and you've got some, some cares, some concerns, some things you just can't, like, figure out, give that to him. And, and maybe you're here today and you're like, man, this, this whole bit about relationship and trusting him as a shepherd, I don't even know what you're talking about. Great stuff. I don't get it. But maybe you would like to. And you have questions about what it would look like to trust Jesus for yourself, to be in relationship with him yourself. And not just showing up on a Sunday morning because you lost a bet. Because a lot of our teams lost yesterday. I could see why you're here. <laughs> but here's the deal. If that's you, and you want to just find out what it would look like to follow after Christ and have a relationship with him, what we're going to have is I'm going to invite our elders up. Mike, if you would come. Um, if Jody's with you, if you would come. Um, Keith and Maria, if you guys would come and be over here. Yeah. 
And these are two of our elders here at our church, Mike and Keith. And, and, and these men would love the opportunity to pray with you. If you've got questions about trusting Jesus, they would love to pray with you about that. If you've got like some stresses that you just need somebody to pray with you about that, just after the service, after I dismiss this, just walk up to these guys and say, hey, here's what I got. And they would love the opportunity to pray with you. Um, so let's, let's just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for this time that we've been able to share with one another. I thank you for the sweet celebration of sweet Ella Pierce. Lord God, what an incredible, incredible story. Lord God, I pray that you would help us in this room, those of us who are just stressed to the max. That you would help us understand the uncommon peace that you give in Christ. And Father, if there's anyone in here, Lord God, who your spirit is drawing to yourself and they've got questions and want to know what it looks like to, to trust you, to walk with you, Father, I pray that you would lead them up front just to pray with one of our elders today. Father, we thank you for this. We trust you with these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, just again, um, if you've if you got some things you need prayer over, come grab one of these guys. Aaron, if you would come over here with Mike. So... She's an elder's wife too. Um, yeah. So if you, if you have just, you're struggling with something, you need prayer, or honestly, if you just want to follow Jesus and you want to know what it looks like, come grab them. Church, we love you. It is our joy that we get to serve alongside of you. Have a great week. Go in Jesus' name.